0: what stories are out there that we can kind of invest our hearts in today that we know will be passed on to our children and our grandchildren because i mean that's what we call our traditions that's what we call our sacred stories you know what i mean and it's like this is one of those sacred things care of the ocean of mother ocean to our children and our grandchildren so and not only you know not only is it a story of like care and love but you've got this progression for profit for health for you know for rejuvenation of culture um for food scarcity you know going away you've got all these solutions wrapped up into this one big idea that Mm -hmm is a looming hole in permaculture. And when you look up ocean or sea or marine and the word permaculture, there's really hardly anything, but there is one thing, there is one thing (laughs) there, and that is you. And so it's like, you are standing there as the, you're the trailblazer. And so it it is an honor to be talking to the the leader in 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 ocean permaculture currently, I mean you're leading the charge. I, I've brought it up in my books and stuff, and tried to study it and everything as best as I can. But you're mm-hmm. leading the charge, so it is an absolute pleasure to have you on here and talk to you.
1: <laughs> well, thank you, Matt. I appreciate that, and it's great to connect with you as well. Uh, I feel as though we've got a great opportunity to apply deep permaculture principles to life in the ocean and the ocean ecosystems. And by understanding those better, we can learn how to live in harmony with them. And I think that's a huge opportunity because the fate and the survival of 3 billion people on the planet depends on protein from the ocean. And if we can't make that sustainable, um, then we're going to be dealing with dire consequences. And turning that around, ensuring enough food for people and enough food for the ecosystems is vitally important for our own survival of our civilization, I would say.
0: And it's almost like this is a light switch we haven't even flipped on as humans yet. And it's, it's, it's literally that easy, too. It's almost like a light switch.
1: Yeah, I think connecting, uh, connecting the fate of the Earth and her ecosystems with the fate of civilization is something that hasn't been fully drawn. But I think there are a couple of books that touch on it. I mean, soil is a bit of a bit like that and the whole notion there was this premise by several books actually that every major collapse of civilization was tended to be preceded by a collapse of the soil and that fundamentally it's the collapse of the soil that results in the collapse of the civilization so if we extend that metaphor to soils and seas it's when either one or both collapse that we lose our civilization and Literally, I think there's an existential challenge for us to keep the life in the seas and the soils alive and and thriving in order to ensure that our civilization will continue. Wow.
0: So let's just start at the beginning. Let's go, let's introduce everyone to this concept of marine permaculture and what it is, how it's both a technique, and it's also a concept because most people, I think, that they're they're like, oh, all right, so you're gonna like clean up the ocean and let things just you know happen. <laughs> but it is not like that. It is quite exciting because it, it can involve all these people.
1: Well, that's very true, and it's and it's at a local scale. I mean, we've got more than a hundred thousand indigenous farmers. Um, we're talking about subsistence farmers in the Philippines that grow a hectare of seaweed, and that's their survival, right? And and For them, they're living on the front lines of climate disruption. The water's become too warm. The nutrient levels are too low. They cannot produce the crops that they had in decades past. And so that's a real challenge to um, enable their way of life to continue and to address the nutrient value chain gaps that have been introduced by climate disruption and to restore overturning circulation so they get enough cool water with the right nutrient levels so that these seaweed farms can continue to thrive. And that's the real challenge is to, is to bring that back because right now their communities are collapsing. The communities are not having the economic sustainability to, to even keep them running. The kids have to go off to the city. I mean, it's just, um, you know, there's not a continual, there's not a model for continuing those communities. And so until we can get, I mean, irrigation, for seaweed farms is like irrigation for regular farms. If you if you have the difference between dry cropping and irrigation is enormous, especially if you have to survive droughts. And so we're bringing irrigation to seaweed farms for the first time. And we're able to give, I mean, there's in, the, in Indonesia, there are millions of seaweed farmers. And so being able to have that continue means a way of life for millions of people. And furthermore, the seaweed farms and kelp forests are habitat for billions of forage fish, and that's the base of the food chain for the protein source for three billion people.
0: Awesome. Can you define for us what um, what ocean irrigation is? Because there's- Yes. For it.
1: Right. And so it's a way of thinking of it like uh, irrigating a farm, drip irrigation, but effectively when the is too warm and aren't enough nutrients, you need to have, you need to restore enough upwelling that we can actually bring the deep cool water up to the surface. And that's what the seaweed lives off of. And so what's worked in previous decades no longer works. And so that's a bit of a challenge. And so our challenge and our opportunity is to, uh, is to make that works smoothly again. It's really filling the value chain gaps that climate disruption has caused. And once that works smoothly, people's livelihoods can be restored. And by the way, we can restore the sardine fisheries that have been decimated. Uh, And partly they've been decimated from the climate disruption as well. These people didn't create the climate problem, but they're feeling the brunt of it. They have no crop insurance. There is no backup. Their survival depends on these crops continuing. And I'm shocked at the number of suicides in India, that far, I mean, farmers commit suicide in India because they have no backup. And, you know, that's what we're dealing with, people on the edge of climate disruption. And so that's the problem. Um, you know, the, the thing that makes me enthusiastic about marine permaculture is that not only does it address these problems, but it ends up regenerating ecosystems in the ocean in terms of, first of all... The kelp forest, that in Tasmania, that's been mostly depleted, can be regenerated with this mechanism. That creates habitat for forage fish as well. And it keeps an ecosystem alive that otherwise is predicted to collapse over the next few decades. By ensuring that can continue, we can actually ensure that we're able to keep those um, forage fish, game fish, apex predators. They all depend upon these kind of ecosystems for their survival. So it's really the base of the entire uh, pyramid of life, if you would, in the ocean, this tree of life. It's a, um, it's it's critical to have the base of the tree be healthy and stable.
0: So many of us have heard about the, like the Atlantic current slowing, but this has more to do with like upwelling, right? And so you're, are you replacing upwellings that have slowed or, or, or tailed off or are you creating new upwellings for both?
1: It's, it's restoring regionally uh, the upwelling the, the overturning circulation normally offshore you have got offshore winds that will bring water up to the surface For example, the summer winds off the coast of California uh, with the Coriolis forces they cause a lot of upwelling to occur on in good years now in 2016, that upwelling partially failed. The water was really warm, and we had the big warm blob. And when the water is warm, it's even harder to get the upwelling going. And that's the problem. If the winds aren't strong enough, or if the water is too warm, the upwelling doesn't happen, and 95% of the seaweed dies, as has died off Northern California, north of San Francisco. We've lost 95% of the Neurocystis kelp for us, and it's not coming back. Until we've taken care of 99% of the sea urchin problem that's come out as a result of this global warming scenario, so this warm current that started, you know, back before 2013, um, it's actually caused a lot of problems up and down the coast, and those need to be addressed systematically. And marine permaculture is one way of addressing it locally.
0: So, what 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 have you proposed for the uh, the urchin barrens? Well, the
1: State of California, Fish and Wildlife, has been in discussions with the idea of harvesting. I mean, the urchin barons are like zombies. They're walking around on the seafloor, starving, asking for more brains. (laughs) And fundamentally, there's no kelp left to eat. And so uh, one approach is to harvest some of them, rehabilitate them, and that means feeding them kelp and then shipping them to Japan and, and California as uni uh, for wow. sushi, which is high value. But yeah. to do that, we need a lot of kelp. And where else, We're better to grow that kelp than on a marine permaculture offshore Northern California? We can grow kelp in 90 days. Uh, the challenge and the opportunity is not to, you're not gonna eliminate all the sea urchins overnight because they're just gonna crawl back in. Um, you, you take a few, you harvest those, you rehabilitate them by feeding them kelp that we grow offshore on floating platforms. And so we have the substrate, we have the upwelling, we can get the kelp to grow on our platform, we can partially harvest the kelp and feed that kelp to the urchins and they will rehabilitate, they'll get plump and juicy and ready to go. And, uh, and that's, those, those rehabilitated urchins are marketable. In mm-hmm. food markets across the world. So that is a good model, but we need to have the kelp to do it. And marine permaculture is probably the most sustainable way to grow that kelp locally and without huge transportation costs, provide it to the uh, urchin rehabilitation centers. We use endogenous energy that means wave energy, solar energy, wind energy to bring water up from the deep to the kelp forest itself. And just like a drip irrigation system on land, we use. A drip irrigation system to end diffuser hoses to little holes to distribute the deep cool seawater to the kelp forest, and so literally it's a drip irrigation system for a kelp forest.
0: Wow, I cannot wait to see this come to California in force. This is really exciting because I, I learned about this first when I read sea And Yes. That book has started so many different ideas in my head and and a lot more questions. Um, But the number one thing that I've wanted to see is working examples. And you've won some recognition for for the work you've done proving this model, right?
1: Well, yes, we've been uh, developing it. We've received uh, awards from several foundations and uh, we've also been featured in a new documentary called 2040 which just was released in Australia this month and has already hit number nine in the box office against Hollywood feature films and everything. So, um, and we're gonna do a showing in New York, I think over the next few days. And at the end of June, uh, there'll be a showing in DC as well. These are screening, these are like preview screenings, but it's gonna be released, I believe later this year in America. And it's this uh, great hopeful view of the future in 2040. And so I think these visions are critical. And one of the, one of the five future technologies is marine permaculture, and it's all about regenerating life in the ocean. And so it's this wonderful, hopeful view of the future, which is great. And relating to seasteading, we firmly believe that marine permaculture is the reason for seasteading to exist. In other words, first you build the mariculture, and then you build the communities that support the mariculture. So we're really looking forward to working with the sea community to make this become a vital economic force.
0: Absolutely. So that is so incredible. My first thought was like number nine in Australia, marine permaculture. It's like you are, you're like, not only are you coming from the edges of permaculture but you're coming straight to the front <laughs> and you may, you may be one of the people that really breaks permaculture into the mainstream for a lot of people. This is, this is amazing.
1: <laughs> we really hope so. No, it's great. It's, um, you know, I'll tell you, going to Australia is a real joy and learning the deep principles of permaculture and applying them to marine ecosystems is incredibly rewarding. There's so much to be done and the analogies are just incredible. I mean, from soils to seas, the, it, the principles apply across ecosystems, across the known universe. And that's what's incredible, is that it works so well, you know, understanding how we can live sustainably with the forests of Tasmania, uh, as well as living sustainably in the forests of the kelp. I mean, they're both there, they're equally vibrant, and in fact, the diversity of species is absolutely critical. So. The multi-species benefits accrue, I think, at least as much in the sea as they do on land. The fish end up fertilizing the kelp, and the kelp are the seeding grounds for the eggs. It, that's where they, the herring lay their eggs. And I've got a story to tell from Hokkaido, Japan. In 1897, the Japanese in Hokkaido harvested a million tons of herring off the northwest coast of Hokkaido. And this, they did every year, year in and year out, the herring would go between the Sea of Okhotsk in Russia to Hokkaido, Japan, and back in a migratory cycle. And imagine a million tons of, of herring being harvested each year. They would lay their eggs in the Sakharina Kelp Forest in the north of Hokkaido. And it wasn't until 1953 that, this incredible school of herring became extinct because of over overfishing and so they lost all the herring but the real surprise was that a few decades later the saccharina kelp forest was decimated and they went back and did isotopic studies of the saccharina kelp in the recent past and all the way back in the early 1900s. And they found that in the early 1900s, the Saccharina kelp forest was being fertilized by the herring themselves. It was the um, nitrogen given off by the herring and everything that really kept that forest alive. So this idea that first the herring ecosystem collapsed and then the sacharina kelp forest ecosystem collapsed that these two ecosystems are connected is really vital. And what we see as an opportunity is with marine permaculture to regenerate the Sakharina kelp forest off Hokkaido and then regenerate the herring ecosystem and rebuild it. One of my advisors from Caltech, Dick Feynman, liked to say, you don't understand a system until you've built it. And we like to say, you don't understand an ecosystem until you've rebuilt it. And by that, I mean regenerate the same ecosystem services offshore in a marine permaculture, and that's our vision to be able to understand ecosystems well enough to regenerate them and enable them to be climate
0: resilient. So I'm so fascinated by this idea of bringing the heron back to there. Do you think that um, they'd have to be like trained to do the to do the migration pattern? that they used to? Or do you think that the natural currents following the path of nutrients and warming will just lead them to do that?
1: That's a good question. You know, when there are billions of herring, what I realized is the herring or the sardines create an ecosystem. The school itself is an ecosystem. If you ever go scuba diving with a massive school of fish, you, you go in, you can't even see through the school of fish. You go in and you dive down and you get up you ended up being surrounded by a sphere of fish. Like right? they're a certain distance away from you, a few meters. But imagine being in a bubble of fish, and all you can see in all directions is fish. And that is what it's like to be inside a massive school of fish ecosystem. It's just amazing. Absolutely incredible. It's happened to me a few times in my life. And I realized then that when you have billions of fish, they create their own ecosystem. And that's fundamental. But to bootstrap that ecosystem, we need habitat. So when you don't have billions of fish, you need a kelp forest. Because the kelp forest, those leaves are just the right size for a fish to hide behind. You know, It's just the right size structure. And it's self-assembling and it's regenerating. And, so, and it's producing oxygen, right? And food and habitat, all these things. So the kelp forest is the self-assembling habitat that bootstraps the forage fish. It's the habitat for the forage fish ecosystem. So it's really this this virtuous spiral that we need to regenerate in the oceans, and it starts with primary production. And that is the macroalgae habitat, microalgae food for these forage fish, enabling the ecosystems to thrive fundamentally. Well, the potential is enormous. Uh, we start with food. Three billion people on the planet depend on that. But even more you know of all the animal protein in the world uh only one small set of animal protein actually is associated with increased longevity and that is small forage fish so when it comes to health sardines anchovies maybe suitably and sustainably raised salmon those are the fish that are neuroprotective they actually convey confer more neuroprotective benefits than the hazards of heavy metals so if you want great cognitive health span and a healthy uh, lifespan. Forage fish are the answer. The lowly sardines, the anchovies, and the salmon. So these these are examples of forage fish species that are associated with health and uh, longevity. So it's really a huge factor. and as this comes out more and more, along with bits of seaweed, I mean we had seaweed just yesterday and it was wonderful. We harvested some seaweed <laughs> offshore. And I'll just tell you, I've, we had some Australian uh, seaweed, uh, seaweed farmers come, and they made this amazing sesame oil sauté that's to die for. It's like, get me more of that seaweed salad. That was incredible. But you know, the amazing thing is, the ancient allele of humans, hundred thousand years ago, they were a very small group of humans living in southern Africa, and they were by the coast, and they were living probably in caves, and their diet was a coastal diet. And it was shellfish, uh, perhaps seaweed, uh, yams, and vegetables. And that diet continues to this day in Western Nigeria, where amazingly, um, the diet seems to be a key factor in their completely decoupling the Alzheimer's gene from the phenotype of Alzheimer's. And so this is just one example. Another comes from Dr. Jane Tease, who's worked at Harvard uh, Medical School. Um, She taught there at UMass and in South Carolina. And she spent 40 years studying breast cancer around the world and found that, well, in countries like Thailand, the level of breast cancer is seven times lower. And they developed a mouse model for this uh, as an experiment. And they actually just fed the test mice an ounce or two equivalent in humans of the seaweed mixture, and it cut the breast cancer tumor incidence by more than an order of magnitude. I mean, to me, that was amazing, that the, uh, neuro, the, the neuroprotective benefits and, secondarily, the um, antioxidant benefits, phytonutrients and omega-3s had such a profound effect on so many of the critical diseases that are devastating mankind today. So this non-Western diet of seaweed and fish has amazing benefits for humans, and that's just one of a dozen value chains that we can identify from seaweed and fish and marine permaculture.
0: And how much does this cost? You know, per square meter or for you know half hectare to set up these seaweed farms? Just to give someone an idea, they're like, how could they start one of these? How much right. money do you really need? Well, so if
1: we were doing 100 hectares at a time, today, in our development mode, it's more than $10 a square meter, which is pretty darn expensive. However, we are going through that cost reduction process as we speak, improving the technology, making it smoother, making it worm smoother. And by the time we build 100 of these, our goal is to be below $1 per square meter for a marine permaculture. And that should be, you know, we should be able to earn that much in seaweed and fish. Each year, so the capital cost should be manageable in that the next few years. The the challenge that we're facing is that today in the Philippines and tomorrow in other regions, uh, it's going to be harder and harder for those seaweed farms to exist. We've even seen off the west coast of Australia, they lost a thousand square kilometers of Eclonia kelp forest just since two thousand eleven. And it switched like this. It went like in one warm year, it was like like this bi-stable switch. And it went to turf. And we lost all that habitat in just a year or two. And it hasn't come back. It's kind of like Easter Island. It's stable as a rainforest. And it's stable with no trees whatsoever. But it's up to us to uh, get that system into the, to, to enable to regenerate it to the point where it's able to be stable on its own. And
0: very difficult I think
1: a key part of that is you know we've got to uh, like it or not if we if we're going to keep these kelp forests going and these seaweed farms we're going to need to restore the overturning that once was the overturning circulation and you, so we use yeah renewable energy to do that
0: do you think that a fishing moratorium is because I've called for for temporary moratoriums on fish while we create balance and bring back the predators and observe the way predators interact with these 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 regenerated populations so that we could start imitating them and regeneratively grazing from those populations because on 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 land we've got great examples of all the documentation all the the bird watchers um the audubon society participating with the hunters doing all the research so they can give accurate numbers to the hunters so they can set a precise hunting quota so that it will regenerate the population rather than decimate it or let it go too far and then let uh, diseases start to try to uh, manage it because something needs to manage things to that sweet Goldilocks level. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. i feel like we 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 need something like that you know for for well so we have
1: right we have some great examples of cat shares in chile and the chilean cat shares work like this the resources boards figure out the sustainable harvest of sardines each year for example and then all of the ships in chile are registered and according to their tonnage they get a percentage of the pie they get a slice of the pie and they've got six or nine months to go and get that quota. And then it gets weighed when it comes back. But then it turns what was a cutthroat industry into a cooperative industry. And the fishing cooperatives now meet every month and they get together and they talk about how to make the pie bigger. And that's what marine permaculture is all about. How do we make the pie bigger? And we shift the demand from non-sustainable fish to forage fish like sardines, anchovies, salmon. We shift that demand and we get the neuroprotective benefits, we get the health benefits, and without all the heavy metals. And so that's a key thing is to shift demand over to sustainable fish that's healthier and more sustainable. And we're planning to grow billions more sardines on marine permacultures with no nets, no fish feed, and ultimately no deep water moorings. What that means is that we have a new model for regenerating Enough food in the ocean for people and for nature, and that's the key—is really making the pie bigger, and it's about regenerating the life that once was in our ecosystems before industrial uh, practices. I love it. It's ocean care.
0: <laughs> I mean, like it really, is. It is they get together and share their care for the ocean, and it carries on into the future. It's
1: in fact year- in Australia. In Australia, we've been calling it caring for sea country. Oh, and sea country is the indigenous term for the kelp forests of the ocean, the seaweed forests, even the, even the coral. And wow. so, caring for sea country is all about bringing back that the traditional owners' knowledge of the equilibrium in the sea wow. and wow. using that and embracing it and extending it to regenerate ecosystems in the ocean, regenerate life in the ocean based on known ecosystems
0: thrive wow that's really that's really special I mean the indigenous uh, the Aboriginal Australians have had such a traditionally incredible and unique relationship with the ocean I'm I read dark emu and learned about how they were partnering with the killer whales the orcas to do hunting and they would drive the fish towards the shore in the shallows and then they would hunt and they would feed the orcas. And the orcas, it was, and it, the relationship went on until a Western um, whaler killed the, the head of the pod of that orcas that was actually passing down the tradition. So incredibly sad, but at the same time, it's this window into what is really possible. And so I'm really excited. That's so awesome that that, there's that honoring connection that is so wonderful to hear. So I've heard from a couple people that upwelling can be dangerous. So what what are they talking about and how can we kind of like buffer against any of those potential problems?
1: Well, the first thing is to understand that in this tropical and subtropical ocean, we've lost about 40% of upwelling due to climate disruption, due to the 93% of global warming that's mm-hmm. going into the ocean. Mm-hmm. So the first and foremost, we're talking about restoring ecosystem services. And restoring means restoring the upwelling that once was. Before we had this warm layer of water on the surface, that's now 1.1 degrees Celsius on average warmer. Here in my hometown of Woods Hole, it's two degrees Celsius warmer, and down in Tasmania, where they're losing the kelp forest, it's three to four degrees Celsius warmer than it was historically. And so, this huge marine heat wave is having profound effects throughout the oceans, and from the kelp forest of Tasmania to the Great Barrier Reef of off Queensland to Hawaii, where we—I never—I mean, I lived in Hawaii for three years. I never thought I would see coral bleaching there. And yet we had 50% bleaching during 2015, 2016 time period. Really, really serious and dangerous, quite frankly. We, you know, we're, we're flirting with collapsing that ecosystem. You know, Charlie Veron said, each of the five major extinctions in the history of the earth has been preceded by the extinction of the coral reef. It is the canary in the coal mine. It's what's going to determine, I mean, that Anthropocene is already, we're on the edge of it, right? And our opportunity, well, I view marine permaculture as one of our key opportunities to stave off the Anthropocene, to keep most of nature alive on our watch. And it's because we've got to address that problem. So when you talk about restoring ecosystem services, we've got to look at the loss of overturning circulation that's happened and then view this in the context of restoring it locally so that regionally we can have reasonable temperatures, reasonable nutrient levels. That said, if you had a harmful algal bloom off the coast of California, like that's happened in previous years, you wouldn't want to make it worse. So we monitor for that. And if there is a harmful algal bloom happening, we'll monitor downstream. If it's getting worse, we can turn off the pump. We can just, you know, no more upwelling. And till the bloom goes away, that works fine. So we have monitors, we can watch for that. It's always good to have safeguards and to be looking for any side effects. But fundamentally, we're, we're, mimicking natural ecosystems, and in this case, it's about identifying the nutrient value chain gap that's occurred from climate disruption, and that's specifically upwelling and restoring overturning circulation, particularly in tropical and
0: subtropical waters. So, these algae blooms are a product of heat and a lack of oxygen, right? And then it goes into- Oftentimes,
1: organic- yes. Nutrients, nutrients are a part of it. so go oh, off the coast of Oregon. Right. And so human eutrophication is a key factor. It tends to be along the coastline. It tends to be on the 1% of the ocean that's eutrophied. Keep in mind, 99% of the ocean is oligotrophic. That's the opposite. That's low nutrients. In fact, in Japan, they talk about oligotrophication as a problem, which is a mouthful. But what it means is their bays are becoming so low in nutrients, they're losing all their fish. And so they're actually having the opposite problem of trying to figure out how to keep their fish going, and they can't get enough nutrients to keep their fish populations going. So it's actually been a big problem, the opposite problem in Japan, and it's one that we have we can address with marine permaculture. That's why a lot of times we'll take marine permaculture offshore, where you're dealing with oligotrophic conditions, you're not near a human eutrophied zone, and this is a place where we can regionally restore some of the kelp forest ecosystem services that have been lost off the coast of Northern California and off of Tasmania.
0: That's interesting, so I had a suggestion when I looked at Bren Smith's um, system, I grew up um, on the Long Island Sound, so when I saw he was working there, I was like, what? Um, but like, initially, I mean, my first instinct is like, okay, so we've got all these excess nutrients and we've got all, you know, this carbon it's like well you would just turn it into soil and so when and when there's a lack of nutrients my instinct is always like well, what are the ocean soils like right there's four you know um, major maritime soils so it's like um i was suggesting like growing and then cutting and then letting it um break down in in, in place or something like that would that create more of a problem though for a temporary time period? Well, it depends on where
1: you do it. We're, yeah. we're looking at uh, deep ocean areas that are further mm-hmm. offshore. And there, partial harvest makes a lot of sense. But there is uh, a notion of a, a series of refinement processes. I mean, there are really helpful materials, like uh, Fucoidin for example, is known to be really effective against many diseases and even symptoms of arthritis. And so many companies will, nutraceutical companies, will harvest these phytonutrients Antioxidants and omega-3 fatty acids that are available in seaweeds, and so a partial harvest involves this process of uh, identify of of getting the high-value nutrients uh, from the seaweed, and then secondarily, there are many uh, benefits like hydrocolloids, uh, carbohydrates, et cetera, that are in the seaweeds, and then finally, the residues that are left over from that process. Not to mention food itself, we do a lot of harvest for direct food source, the residues that aren't used for food feed or fertilizer, we can actually generate a blue carbon sink. And that blue carbon sink, this these um, seaweed residues drop 500 meters a day. Uh, and after two days, they're down below a thousand meters. If they're down a thousand meters, the median time to overturning to outcropping again is centuries to millennia. And that means that we've generated a real blue carbon sink. Now this is offshore, it's in deep water, but Keep in mind, the middle and deep ocean has 50 times as much carbon as the entire atmosphere of the Earth. So if we do a responsible job of developing blue carbon sinks and distributing it throughout the ocean, the drawdown that's needed, there's truly enormous room in the ocean to absorb the excess carbon of the atmosphere. Now, we should reduce the carbon intensity of our civilization first and foremost by a factor of five, but techniques like marine permaculture can to, first of all, reduce the intensity of our civilization in terms of its carbon use, but then secondly, to draw down the remaining carbon using techniques like marine permaculture and other approaches in a sustainable way that's feeding the planet and ecosystems at the same time. So we're doing one project in Tasmania where we're working side by side along with salmon aquaculture farms. And part of it is that the kelp forest has higher water temperatures and lower nutrient levels than it needs in order to survive. And so if we grow the kelp forest right next to and on the salmon aquaculture, we can draw down some of those nutrients and actually help Forest grow. And if we partially harvest that kelp forest, we're now removing nitrogen and phosphorus from the ocean. So we're reducing the impact of the salmon aquaculture on the environment. At the same time, those kelps can go onto food, feed, and fertilizer. We can actually use them as mulch and as compost for agriculture on land. Furthermore, and this is not that broadly known, these uh, seaweed extracts are a great form of root density and we can increase the flowering of rice, of vegetables, even grain crops, it's just amazing. I mean, soybeans, it's just like between 11 and 50% higher yields using seaweed foliar biostimulants. So that increase in yield is transformational, imagine, right, today, you wouldn't think of running a winery in California without using seaweed, foliar, biostimulants to increase the number of grapes and the yield. That's standard practice in the industry today. But why isn't it being used for vegetables? Why isn't it being used for rope crops? we are seeing less than 1%, more. imagine in India, 11% more rice means 100 billion more people Get fed. I mean, it's huge and fits from this thing just about. So, these, there's some kind of interaction between the seaweed um, foliar biostimulant and it gets into the stomata of the leaves and it actually upregulates gene expression and upregulates flowering. And so, this is a really transformational product that we think is going to have enormous benefits throughout agriculture
0: amazing so as we remove that problem we turn it into like this ultimate benefit that we've been neglecting (laughs) i love it
1: exactly yeah so we go from waste products into high value
0: so could we apply this idea maybe on the farthest edges of the dead zone in or the right outside the dead zone in in the Gulf, to start taking up those excess nutrients and then start working our way in? Would we need to aerate or oxygenate the dead zone? What do you think? Well, I think we
1: could start further upstream. There are actually freshwater analogs to marine permaculture that could work in the rivers themselves, and they could actually draw down the nutrient levels in the rivers before it ever gets to the sea, wouldn't that be great? So we should be looking at that, and we've been studying uh, plants like azola and related plants that do a great job of drawing, dead- and they can double in three days. So it's really a very a highly valuable way of addressing the problem upstream, which is a great start. And then furthermore, I think we can begin to address the edges of the dead zone, so to speak, with techniques like this, because... The marine permacultures are increasing the oxygen in the ocean. They are they are actually uh, increasing the the oxygenation, the life in the ocean, and the cycling. So there, we need to try it. We need to understand what species work and what places work, because after all, permaculture in general and marine permaculture in particular is a set of principles. It's a framework, and you take local species of foundational seaweeds and local forage fish, and you are able to regenerate an ecosystem based on that. So these design principles can work in a variety of ecosystems across the planet, and we need to adapt the general principles that work to a particular environment, a particular ecosystem. And that'll vary from one place to the next, but the principles remain, that of primary production, of creation of habitat and food, and regenerating life in the oceans and ecosystems on the planet.
0: This is absolutely incredible. I want to develop or or get or or, or see some some diagrams of the of the freshwater uh, designs so that we can get them out there. I have so many people who are working in riparian um, settings who are trying to bring back wetlands and and to have these technologies to to you know, either inform that or coincide with that is so powerful. So, I'm just so stoked, this is gonna be amazing. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, well, I mean, you're addressing the, the elephant in the room. This is, when I got into permaculture, I was so excited, so stoked, and then as I started analyzing Bill's work in depth and started examining the holes in it, um, there was an ocean-sized hole. And a lot of people like hate hearing that. They're like, no, Bill Mollison was divine and perfect. And it's like, no, you know, he's just a guy doing research and he's a great guy. He's an amazing genius, no doubt, no doubt. But he missed the whole ocean. You know what I mean? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it's like <laughs> grains of salt or salt shakers, you know, carry them around with you always. But it's like, we need to to let go of, of dogma, of of being stuck in a PDC structure only of permaculture. PDC is a wonderful introduction to permaculture, and it should also include ocean from now on. But it's just the beginning, and to have these career paths, to have um, this exponential growth and expansion of the vision of permaculture. Like you said, these principles are universal. They don't just go into the ocean, they go into our social lives, they go into our business, our economy, our government. And this is, this is a real turning point, I believe, in human history is this understanding that these principles can be applied to everything.
1: So- That's so true. You know, To me, I, great, I take great solace in the fact that Bill Mollison discovered permaculture in the Tasmanian rainforest observing marsupials. And it's the very same Tasmanian kelp forest that we're pioneering marine permaculture in partnership with the University of Tasmania. So, what an incredible full circle. I mean, going from the soils to the seas and figuring out how to make that marine ecosystem work. To me, it's just coming home. And it's coming home in such a fundamental way, being able to regenerate the marine ecosystems and the marine kelp forests and the marine seaweed farms using permaculture principles. That, to me, gets us up in the morning.
0: Absolutely. It's the next step. It's, I mean, yeah, it's the next step in the progression. And it's a massive step. It's a giant step.
1: Sure. You know, while we are growing food, while we're regenerating ecosystems, we can also measure the carbon export. It turns out I was in in Indonesia actually snorkeling around on the edge of the coastline and I found these incredible seagrasses. And within one 10 square meter patch, I found a thriving seagrass bed, seaweed area, and coral reef, all living together. People think of these as competing, but they're helping each other. That was the amazing thing to see that, right? And I also noticed that with every tide, there was tons of seagrass floating to the surface and drifting out on the tide into deep water where it sinks and forms this huge carbon sink that nobody's counting, right? They only count the carbon that's right there. Okay. Well, if you get out in the trenches, you see seagrass, you see seaweed, you see kelp sitting thousands of meters below the surface, Okay, feeding the ecosystem down there. There's all this, there's all this biomass down there. And so it's the non-local export of seagrasses and kelp forests that account for most of the carbon sequestration. If you want a blue carbon sink, I can't think of anything better, right? Because you take the blue carbon, it goes out to the deep ocean on the tide, and it sinks. And so, you know, we probably help that along with offshore marine permaculture. We'll have a harvesting ship that's able to process the seaweed. And then the residue seaweed, the residual seaweed, uh, will sink hundreds of meters a day into the deep ocean. In two days, it's going to be sequestered. We can measure that and measure that carbon export, which has been going on for millions of years. This is really just bringing back that natural process and measuring it. And when we measure it, we'll be able to determine. The amount of carbon. I know that we're able in just a natural kelp forest to fix 3,000 tons of carbon per 100 hectares per year. And that's huge. I mean, it's just an enormous amount of carbon. It turns out to be more carbon per square meter than a tropical rainforest. So the tropical rainforests of California are right off the coast, all those kelp forests fixing thousands of tons per square kilometer per year. And that's what we have to think of the kelp forest as. It's not only one of these richest ecosystems, but it fixes more carbon than any other ecosystem on the planet. So it's it's awesome. And by by doing mimicking nature, by mimicking nature's ecosystems, we call it ecosystem biomimicry. Okay. That's what we're doing. We gotta mimic the entire ecosystem. And when we do that, do a good job of it, we can feed the planet, we can regenerate nature. And those and we
0: can the carbon. So what's so incredible is that in the end result, it is a soil-based system as well. and if everyone talks about how soil is so important, it's like, well, the oceans have their own soil. And I've heard from from uh, mycologists that it is it I mean, they know that there's fungi, they don't know that there's bacteria, but basically they said that the ocean is like a giant, the ocean floor is like a giant fungal digestion, like, mat. And that as these these carbonaceous materials, these organic matter comes into it, it gets, sequ- it gets sequestered very quickly, as you said, like two days. And it's there, it's not leaving. I mean, it's it's done. And for many of us, we talk about how there's no way. This is the closest thing mm-hmm. to it. <laughs>
1: Well, it is, it is really long-term that the carbon that goes below 1,000 meters has a median time to outcropping of between 100 and 4,000 years, and it depends on where you are and all the rest. But fundamentally, there are microorganisms, including fungi, including bacteria and eukaryotes, that uh, will respire the carbon that's down there in most places of the ocean. And it turns back into carbon dioxide, but it stays in the seawater. And that seawater doesn't outcrop until centuries later. And that's the natural cycle of carbon in the oceans. There's 50 times more carbon in the oceans today than the whole atmosphere. So restoring that cycle is something that there's plenty of room to do. And it's something that we need to do in order to ensure that we've got carbon balance in the atmosphere and the oceans don't overheat. And so that's the key thing is to keep the whole system running biology, the biological pump has been doing a great job for millions of years. And we just need to ensure that it can continue to do that job. Because, you know, life in the ocean has been giving us a 30% discount on our carbon emissions for the past two centuries. And if we're not careful, that discount's going to end.
0: Absolutely. And the oxygen with it.
1: Right. So it's vital. And you know, that's how the Permian extinction happened. It was from anoxia. So we've got to keep the overturning circulation going to avoid the Permian extinction repeat.
0: So how can permaculturists everywhere support, participate, and learn more?
1: Well, we're doing the development right now and I'm very happy to announce that we've got a partnership with the Intrepid Foundation which is helping to support the kelp forest restoration in Tasmania. And so we've got this fundraiser right now. It's called, I think, Intrepid Foundation Seaweed. And what they're doing is matching dollar for dollar every contribution that goes into this up to a third of a million dollars. And that's going to be enough to demonstrate that the kelp forest grows back. We're doing, we're developing a super kelp, warm adapted uh, variety from the eastern Tasmanian kelps that have survived. And that super kelp, in combination with the higher nutrient levels that are available near the fish pens will be the beginning of marine permaculture light, which is going to be the beginning of getting it to work all over right now. And we're very thankful to the Intrepid Foundation for matching dollar for dollar any contributions that come in. And then furthermore, um, we've got this new film coming out 2040, which is all about these design principles. And then ultimately, it's going to be about Having a decentralized way to uh, to apply marine permaculture on a hectare by hectare basis, and we'll have to figure out how does that work in a distributed way. What does it look like? Do we have a, Do we have a CSA where we've got a shared resource of a um, you know a uh, an upwelling system that can be shared across a hundred hectares, and you can have a hundred hectare plots? These kind of things are all possible in the future. Ultimately, to the point where you can build a community that's gonna have offshore a huge upwelling system, you could be doing hundreds or thousands of hectares, and suddenly seasteading is thriving because you've got this huge agricultural metropolis, if you will, of California, it's a floating island of life.
0: So that's
1: the vision that I see as we go forward
0: wow that is a powerful powerful vision <laughs> and i am thank so, you oh you're so welcome thank you for coming on and taking the time to inspire us and give us you know some of the deepest hope um, i think that when we talk about the ocean it is this ocean-sized problem and it's intimidating but when we when we look at at the potential of flipping that problem into a solution it is so much even it is even greater you know it's so massive so thank you for for riding that wave for for taking on this massive challenge because uh you're leading i mean no one's doing this, this is so critical thank you so much
1: well thank you matt it's a real pleasure